Welcome to Reading the Room, a literary podcast featuring author interviews and discussions with bookish content creators. I am your host, Jalen, also known as The Bar in the Bookcase on YouTube. Today I am joined by Claire Dieterer, author of Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma, available now from Knopf. The collection considers the very big question of whether we can separate the art from the artist. She explores the audience's relationship with artists from Woody Allen to Michael Jackson, asking, how do we balance our undeniable sense of moral outrage with our equally undeniable love of the work? In a more troubling vein, she wonders if an artist needs to be a monster in order to create something great. And if an artist is also a mother, does one identity inexorably and fatally interrupt the other? Highly topical, morally wise, honest to the core, Monsters is certain to incite a conversation about whether and how we can separate artists from their art. If you would like to support Reading the Room, I have a Patreon. Joining the Patreon gives you access to a bonus monthly episode of the podcast, which are chats with friends about literary discourse or other bookish topics. Also, you can receive access to my book club. I select a book each month, and you can join me near the end of every month on Zoom to discuss it with other Patreon members. If you miss it or cannot join, the book club recording will always be uploaded to my YouTube channel so you never miss out. Reading the Room is an independent podcast, so every member contributes to making this the best literary podcast it can possibly be. Thank you to all who have joined so far, and I look forward to meeting more of you at patreon.com slash readingtheroom, also linked in the episode notes. Other ways of supporting the podcast include leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts, or otherwise sharing the episode with friends, family, anyone you know that loves literary fiction. Now, let's get into the discussion with Claire Dieter. Claire, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So this is a literary fiction I guess, focus podcast, and this is a book of nonfiction. And so I just wanted to say first, thank you for coming on. And I'm really excited to talk about this because this question of separating the art from the artist is a very huge question. Um, and to tackle it in a book seems like a really huge, daunting task. And I wanted to ask you first about going from having a viral essay on this topic in the Paris Review and moving to an essay collection, what that looked like for you over the last few years and coming to write this book. Yeah, I think it's helpful to think about how the essay sort of the original essay came into being, which is that I had been in my previous book, which was a memoir that dealt a lot with the 1970s and like the sexually predatory kind of culture of the 1970s. I wrote quite a bit about Roman Polanski in that book, even though, of course, he is unknown to me personally. But um, I sort of used him as this kind of totem figure for how to think about predation and what was happening to girls. And I, I took his case and wrote about it in the memoir. And then when I finished, and so I researched it, right? So I read, you know, the victim's deposition and I, I read a bunch of the history of it. And uh, when I was done, I knew what there was to know about the crime. I found I could still uh, consume the work. And so I, I was like, well, this is a really powerful topic to write about. And this was really like in 2014 or 2015 that I began writing on this. And so I started, I had this idea for the book and that I, and sort of started, I wrote on it for maybe a year or a year and a half. And then um, Me Too exploded in fall of 2017. I mean, obviously a much longer term movement, uh, but it really came to the forefront of everyone's minds during that October, 2017. And so the essay in fact was the first chapter of the book. So for me, the essay was all, it was interesting to have it received as a viral essay because it was really in my mind, kind of an opening salvo. So it's been interesting to navigate its reception um, and both appreciation of it and arguments with it from, from it having been published as a standalone thing when it was really opening the door always into this longer work. So 
that is how the essay kind of came into being, which isn't quite what you asked, but sort of makes makes the whole thing make more sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, my next question for you is just about, I guess, the structure of it and having 13 essays and how you landed on each topic that's addressed in each essay. Like, when did that structure land for you? Right. So I, I worked on this book for a long time. And uh, I love being asked questions. Every writer loves to talk about structure. It's like, if only that could be all we did was just chat all day about structure. So I had conceived, this is so pretentious, but the way I conceived of the book was a book length thought act was the term that kept kind of coming to the front of my mind. And I think what I was really trying to articulate to myself as a writer was that I was trying to write a book length essay. I really wanted it to have that kind of both to the two qualities to me that that make a good a good essay, good literary essay are both the quality of like circumnavigation around the subject matter, but also some kind of trajectory or forward movement or um, action. And I'm not saying necessarily resolution, but there needs to be some kind of propulsion. And I wanted that to stretch across the book. So I originally conceived the book as one single long essay and my original draft had no chapters uh, and just flowed from one thought into the next. And it was just my editor hated it, I'll be honest, <laughs> uh, because there's so much complicated thinking in the book and I bring in all this biographical material and it was just too much for the reader to do. So kind of resetting to this, having each kind of idea I was working with be attached to one particular artist I was talking about, kind of um, siloed it into essays in a way that makes the reader feel more moored and more held in the way the argument moves forward. So each of those monsters, you know, this book was never ever meant to be a catalog of terrible people or a way to sit around and talk about other people's crimes in a sort of in a categorical or, or thorough way. It was always meant to move through different elements of the audience's experience. So each artist was really chosen for how they could illustrate some aspect of the audience experience, either the audience experience or my own experiences as a writer. So there was never, so that was sort of how I came to each different person. And there was also a focus on uh, not trying to keep up with every most recent revelation, right? So my editor really freed me from the the need to kind of have the book be timely. She urged me toward using historical examples or, you know, looking toward the past, which I think does give the, I hope will give the book a little bit of a longer life. I think it absolutely will, first of all. And I, I also love talking about structure and I realized, or I'm, I'm kind of putting this together now, I'm a lawyer and I think, I don't know, just thinking about how you construct the argument here and the sense of propulsion through the end. I mean, I think that does really ring true because for me, I was sort of like, I talked to you about this before we started recording, but I was kind of walloped by the ending. And I think it's really interesting how, how it works structurally and how you kind of, I don't know, tie that line through each chapter and kind of centering in each idea. But then by the end of it, I think you do an interesting like sleight of hand. I don't know if that's the right expression, but I, I was just really moved by the end of it. And I think it just succeeds on that front. So I just wanted to commend you for that. But even before getting into, you know, the meat of this collection, I wanted to ask you about the epigraphs. So again, this is kind of a craft question, but there's one from Clarice Lispector and one from Shirley Hazard. And so I'll just read each one really quickly. The first one is from Lispector and it's, who has not asked himself at some time or other, am I a monster or is this what it means to be a person? 
And then the second one from Shirley Hazard is, it is always tempting, of course, to impose one's view rather than to undergo the submission required by art, a submission akin to that of generosity or love. And coming back to that, after finishing the collection, I was kind of tying it to that idea of love. I was so moved by that and seeing how you structurally, even from the very beginning with the epigraphs, kind of, I don't know, contain everything within those two. So I just wanted to ask you about choosing those and yeah, that process. The epigraphs, I mean, I think that that's a really fun question. I think uh, epigraphs are something every writer really enjoys choosing and it's is kind of, you know, I think every book is in conversation with other books and the epigraph is one of those places where we get to peek at how a writer's, you know, doing that, being in conversation with other writers. This book, obviously there's, I, there could be an epigraph a day for this book. We could do a page a day calendar of epigraphs for this book because there's so many incredible quotes about it. I had, there's some really beautiful quotes from Richard Sykin uh, about monsters. I don't know, do you know his work? He's a poet. I'm not familiar actually. That's but... one of the reasons I wanted to use him is because just to familiarize people with his work. So I went through various Sykin quotes. Um, Kanye briefly made an appearance. Uh, I really wanted to epigraph the book with Runaway, but um, I just, it was, I mean, it really speaks to the um, theme of the book was after a certain point, I could not give the book a Kanye epigraph. It wasn't my place to do it. Some other person who's, you know, part of one of the various groups that Kanye has offended could use it as an epigraph, but for me to do it was not going to work or be okay. So the two I came to, you know, my work's really informed by literary fiction. So I was excited to have two really brilliant and favorite novelists there. I often use novelists in that way. The Spector just, it just sings to me as a quote, as the way it introduces the idea of monstrousness in each of us. You know, the book, the essay, and then the book does make this kind of turn halfway through where you're looking outward at these people. And then I start to look inward, which is a memoirist impulse or probably any good writer's impulse and ask, well, where do I fit in this picture? And, and how much can I call myself by this name? So I love, I feel like those questions are so inherent in her work. Um, so I was really happy to have that there. And the Shirley Hazard quote is just, it just in a very cool analytical and almost like, I don't know, it's almost mathematical that quote, she reveals sort of the, the conclusions the book comes to, which is that we're, you know, we're subject to feelings about these people who make this work. We have all this emotion around the sort of accusations and our own experiences as victims and thinking about all the, the dynamic around what the person has done wrong and what often gets lost in the conversation is that same intense emotion around love of the work which the hazard quote really gets at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it really, it speaks to that idea of the sort of like us versus them dichotomy that's presented in a, in a later essay in which you kind of explore how the audience sort of, I don't know, imposes like the badness on the artist to sort of avoid reckoning with their own badness. And I think that's a really interesting idea. But before we get into there, I guess let's, let's just dive into the meat of these essays. And I wanted to start with Polanski. Um, and there was this really interesting idea that you present early on. Well, the book reckons a lot with the potential for a formula to figure this out, right? Like, can you weigh the badness of an artist versus the goodness of their art to come to some conclusion about, yes, it's acceptable to consume it or to be okay with it? One thing you mentioned is if Polanski's films were bad, then we could maybe just end the inquiry there. Like, it's fine if he's bad because his art is bad, so we don't even have to deal with it. Um, but if it's good, we necessarily have to then reckon with the stain 
which is an idea that I love and a really interesting image that you rely on in this collection. So can you just talk about that first step maybe of an inquiry about good versus bad art as an initial like litmus for raising these questions? Yeah, I think I bring in this idea at the beginning of the book of this really simple balancing, like you say, um, sort of, and I think that that's the reason, there's a lot of reasons that Polanski is the person I talk about in the opening chapter, but one of them, I mean, and it's just chronologically factual that that's how I came to the problem, but there is something so absolute about the kind of weighing in his case, you know, you sort of, the crime is absolutely, you know, it happened and it's unacceptable and the work is, you know, not only beloved by me, but acknowledged to be incredibly important and good. Um, and I sort of gesture at this idea of good, like I, I talk about feeling the goodness when I'm walking, watching even the lesser films. And then I go into talking about Rosemary's Baby and re-watching it and just being, you know, trying to catalog some of the different ways that it's such an incredible film. So to me, he, Polanski, because he has these sort of absolute qualities of badness in person, goodness in art, he sort of brings up this question in starkest relief. So that was why he kind of came forward as the first person. But of course, as the book goes on, and we'll probably talk about this, even that very idea of something being good is intensely scrutinized. And I think that one of the big objectives of the book is to talk about who decides what's good and how what kind of critical authority says something is worthwhile. So I, I kind of throw those things out in the opening chapter and then start to reel them back over the next few chapters. So I wanted to dive into that here because I loved the section about criticism and about genius, um, both cha chapters that kind of, I think they're next to each other, if I recall correctly. Um, but I want to ask you about this idea of subjectivity, because I think it's so important to this book in thinking about your role as a critic and how I myself, I guess, am thinking about this as not a critic, but um, I've been... I don't know, documented on my booktube channel and on this podcast and me even doing this venture of trying to talk to writers about how to think about art and how to talk about it and what what authority is there to say that something is good or bad. I think these really these really hard questions. And myself, I I try to I don't know, I've I've been reckoning with my own ideas around what is the right way to think about art? Is there an objective viewpoint that says like, this is good or this is bad? Or certain critics that I love, they say something that I liked wasn't good. And I'm like, wait. Is, is this bad? Like, I don't know. So that, I love how you, you know, address these questions in a really fun and interesting way. And I wanted to hear your thoughts on how you kind of landed on thinking about this idea of objectiveness versus subjectiveness and your, just to paraphrase, your preference for subject, subjectivity and criticism that you consume and you publish. First, I want to kind of back up to something you said about you not being a critic. And I think that that's really interesting because you're working in media, you're producing something, the something is about books, and the perspective you're working from is one of enthusiasm and love. You talk about work that uh, probably only that, that you actually like, is that correct? I mean, you're not having people on whose work you don't care for. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's like a very interesting way to think of criticism. It's like we, I mean, because it's in the name, right? It's critical. But a lot of the work of criticism, the invisible work of criticism, and some of the most difficult work of criticism is to is to say positive things, is to is to find articulate ways to express love. So I just I just wanted to sort of speak to that because that really does kind of tie into some of my I I, I think you are a critic. 
you know, in that sense, you're, you're curating, you're choosing, you're narrowing, you're focusing, and you're bringing an intelligence to what you're consuming. That's what a critic does. So I think that enthusiasm is one of the things I'm really looking for in a critic. It's fine to be able to do takedowns, but it's more important to be able to, to, um, talk about what you love. And that of course does come from the subjective place. For me, I started out as a critic when I was very young and I was a good writer, um, but I didn't have training. You know, there's no critic school. I really hewed toward a subjective criticism partially out of insecurity. It's like, well, what do I know? I'm just going to say what I think, or I'm going to you know, I talk about this, like, you know, always leading with the eye in my critical writing. And I think that on the one hand, that came out of a um, insecure kind of unsureness about my own authority. But I was also reflecting, like I was a huge reader of criticism, and I was reflecting what I had read. I was reflecting writers who engage with the work in a more emotional and personal way. And I think that I was part of a tradition without being aware of it. Uh, and I was placing myself in that tradition. And I don't think it's an accident that I was a female critic at a time when there were very few female film critics in my city or in any city when I started out. And I could feel, I felt that my difference was a problem and made me less able to pronounce. And what I eventually learned as I wrote and as I grew as a critic was that everybody has difference. In their, in their critical point of view. It's just that there are certain people who don't understand that their point of view is not central, right? So the idea of the white male critic engaging with the work of the white male artist is the is the realm I became a critic within which I became a critic in the in the early 90s. I think that that unquestioning of both those positions is one of the things this book is really tangling with. It's really asking us each as critics to understand ourselves as subject to history. And I think I talk about this quote from Randall Keenan, you know, is there any thought you can have that is not tied to history? That's, that's not, a, you know, that's an other thought. That's a person of color. That's a woman. That's, a, that's not the white male dominant voice that asks that question. How am I tied to history? But of course, we're all subject to history. And as critics, you know, understanding how we're held by history and culture can only, first of all, make the criticism more interesting, right? Like I'm thinking of like Hilton Owls does that really beautifully, but it also doesn't try to coerce the reader into feeling like you were talking about this feeling like, oh, this, this, this critic didn't like something I liked. Am I wrong? it allows more room for different viewpoints to sit next to each other and both be true. Going off of that, one of my questions for you was about how this collection avoids being didactic, right? Like you're, I feel like the book really asks the reader, and my, it's my favorite type of criticism is like this idea of having them grapple with their thoughts like in conversation with you in a, in a sense rather than, so I guess I wanted to ask you about that in terms of how you, maybe it's part of like what you said earlier, like your memoiristic instincts, like how did you, permit the reader to then grapple with their own thoughts and and kind of imposing yourself in this as well. How do you kind of like balance those forces? Yeah, I think that, you know, the relationship with the reader in this book is really complicated uh, or was complicated for me in the process of writing it. And at the end of the book, I come to the work of Pearl Clegg, who wrote this essay, Mad at Miles, which is about her relationship to the work of Miles Davis. And reading Clegg's essay 
really changed my own relationship to my own writing because what I saw was her, you know, the book, the essay, her writing on it is so subjective. She talks about how Miles shapes her days and years and she has this rage at him and she doesn't want to be mad at him, but she is. And there was a way in which that allowed, when I read that, it opened a door for me in terms of her focus on her own subjective experience. And again, her own place in culture, history, race, all those things opens up the perspective of the reader, right? Her, her statement of her own subjective experience is like a permission structure, right? For you to have your own response. And I thought, oh, this is something I can work with as a writer, you know, that I can just keep returning over and over to my own perspective and trying to be aware of how all those things are working on me. Um, and so hopefully that, I hope that that's what gives the feeling you're having that the reader gets to have their own response. I also, you know, I mean, I did have a real come to Jesus in this book about two or three years into it because the book is so, you know, I think because of my memoiristic impulses and also because of the kind of essayistic walking around the problem structure of the book, there is a lot of ambiguity and ambivalence in this book. You know, I have certain conclusions I come through, come to, but even when I'm coming to them, I feel like they give permission for the reader to go somewhere else. And I got worried when I was writing the book that I was doing this because I'm afraid of the internet. Um, so I had to really look at that as I was writing and think like, okay, there's ambivalence here. Am I writing for a bad faith reader? Am I covering my ass so that I don't get attacked from this side or get attacked from that side? Am I finding, you know, what is the very <laughs> worst possible position, which is the moderate or centrist position? You know, it, it's compromise does not equal truth. I think we've found, if nothing else, in the last few years. And um, I had a really, that was a reckoning in the writing of the book was, am I writing for the bad faith reader? And I really, you know, and so I, I went through several months of really tangling with that and then realizing like, no, this is really, this is how I think about the problem. And I can rest in my own ambivalence and ambiguity without thinking that it's an appeasing impulse, right? And that's not, you didn't ask about the internet, but it definitely, you know, the internet is, was, is uh, Twitter's, you know, like looking over my shoulder in the writing of this book. You're thinking about this and being ambivalent about the topic. I mean, the, the book and the essay also talks about shame and the threat of being, you know, shame for loving problematic artists in the in the role that us as audience members have in terms of feeling that shame or the threat of being shamed on the internet, which is now being proliferated with biography and this idea of overwhelming biography about people kind of creating a bigger issue around art versus artists and why I think it's so prevalent now when maybe many years ago we weren't as aware of biography and now it's kind of a force that we are necessarily grappling with. So yeah, I wanted to ask you about shame and your ideas about the upcoming publication of the book. And do you still feel nervous about the response to it? I mean, in a single word, yes. <laughs> but and and uh, I mean, I will toss it back to you. I mean, I think it's like, how do you like, what is the feeling when you're going to post something? Or what's your experience of doing something public? That's I mean, what do you have any of this emotional profile? Yes, I, I'm terrified about everything that I do on the internet, even if it's like something that's so, I don't know, boring or like, I definitely have those impulses. I'm a very anxious person as well. So I think that kind of plays into it. So yeah, I can only imagine like, that's why I love talking to authors too, because I've never published a book and I feel like that must be one of the most vulnerable acts you can do is 
putting your, you know, your, your brain on the page and having people say whatever they want about it seems, it seems like a lot. So <laughs> a lot is, is right. Yeah. I think the shame is something that we're all sort of living with all the time when we're making something i you know what do you do with that how do you move through it is something that i think every artist has to deal with all the time but especially when you're a nonfiction writer there's so much you know you can't hide behind the fact that it's art or you know some other kind of more more defended representation right so um i i think that it's just part of what we live with i know that there's people who can't write because of it. And I understand that. What I did was this. I went through the book and I just poked it every sentence to make sure it was what I really thought. And that was all I could do. You know, I, I just, I don't know what more you can do. I think that uh, Danny Shapiro once told me that she was told by the Buddhist teacher, Sylvia Borstein, that you write to the best of your wisdom with each book and that's going to change but you can't, that's all you can do. And so I tried to remember that, you know, but yes, I'm nervous. So <laughs> it's just, that's just part of the package. I, yeah. I don't have any real wisdom on this. <laughs> no, no, I thank you for speaking on that. It's just something I'm always, you know, curious about, but I, I also just from my own experience, I don't think you have much to worry about because I think it's fantastic. And I, I think you'll receive mostly praise, I would assume. Um, yeah, but sure I mean, it's, but I think that I guess more interesting to me, I think it's a really good question. And I think the reason it's more interesting to me is as almost a process question, or a, it's not, it's not a craft question per se, though, it would be a really, really interesting thing to do a craft talk on the presence of the internet in the mind of the writer, I think would be really interesting thing to address to students of nonfiction writing because it's you know i'm that's all i'm interested in as a writer is these sort of um ghosts or or kind of ghost problems that are shaping us without us realizing they're shaping us or shaping me without me realizing it's happening and i think the internet and how it affects our process is like a great kind of ghost problem that no one talks about um, so, and Melissa Phoebos actually has a really incredible interview about this, where she talks about, you can't write for the bad faith reader. You have to imagine the good faith reader and write for that person and just do your best. I love her as well. I read her uh, collection body work last yeah. year and her, all of her like concepts around navel gazing was, I just <laughs> love that. So she's, I think she's fantastic. I recently in an interview with Jonathan Franzen, I asked him about that question in terms of having, you know, reputation and like the forces of the internet around publishing fiction. And I think that's an interesting divide there between whether fiction, I always think about this, like in terms of auto fiction, particularly that can a writer while writing about themselves, maybe very directly or indirectly, it's kind of a question when you apply a fictional framework to it. But when you're writing nonfiction, like it, there's an assumption from the reader that this is Claire, like exactly Claire on the page. And there's no no tricks or anything, you know? And I, I feel like that must be an interesting force with the internet. I'm gonna have to think about this some more, how the internet plays into that construction of the, the narrative persona. Because of course it's like, there is this, you know, spectrum. It's not, I mean, prose doesn't really work. Like here's nonfiction and here's fiction and they're completely separate from each other, right? There is this spectrum from, you know, an omniscient kind of, 
I don't know, like George Eliot type novel over here to an extremely transparent, hard nonfiction book over here. But in between, we have autofiction, we have research flowing into fiction, and we have the construction of the self in nonfiction. So that's all sort of, I sort of belong in that wishy-washy world in the middle, I think. Um, I really believe in the idea that my narrator is always a construct and that it's a self that is not me and the relationship to who that person is and how they're going to tell the story is usually about the first year or two of work on any book right is like figuring out how you're going to be situated and if I could speed that up maybe I'd be more prolific but I feel like I come to that fresh every time and I think that the internet how the internet affected that construction of a persona really goes back to what I was saying about my narrative persona persona was I couldn't manipulate it or make it as strong as I wanted to when I was constantly preoccupied with how something was going to be received on the internet and there needs to be this the, for this book and I think for all my books there needs to be this central kind of questing intelligence even if it's not very intelligent but it's just you know it's it's got to kind of be this cohesive strong voice so allowing that to be defrayed by the internet just takes away that opportunity for the narrator to exist for that Claire to exist as you were speaking I was thinking about how this might relate to sort of kind of what I took as the thesis of this book in terms of how it's reconciling between this idea of the stain and love as two permanent forces that everyone who consumes art has to deal with, right? So I guess I'm jumping to the, to the end of the book here, but I want to ask you about love, how that informs your writing and consuming of art. And when in the craft of this book, you landed on love as something that you wanted to address in, in these topics. I mean, honestly, it really came, jumped out at me when I started reading. I mean, it had to do with stuff I consumed that I loved to start with, but really reading Pearl Clegg and seeing the deep emotional coloration of that writing made me start thinking about, well, what is, you know, she is writing about love and hate. And these are feelings when she's talking about how she feels about Miles. And um, I also started to notice how I use a passage from Forster about all these different characters and Howard's End listening to Beethoven. Um, but I started to notice these moments in fiction or film of characters' engagement with art and not like ekphrastic kind of work, but just more like looking at other characters, looking at art, right? And how rare it was and how much I loved it. And so I sort of, you know, I saw, sort of saw my own experience refracted through that lens. And that clarified some of my thoughts about it. And so I think I knew, I knew I wanted to bring in this idea of love. And once that happened, it was really hard to put it anywhere at the end, at the end of the book, especially because at the end of the book, I have this conversation with this, this friend who kind of sits me down at a, at a, like a barbecue we're at. And he says, oh, you're writing this book about monstrous artists. And he starts telling me about his relationship with his stepfather, who was a really, really bad person um, and did a lot of crimes. And uh, my friend said, you know, I still love him. And that was that was a moment that sort of took the top of my head off. You know, it just it was his, not just his feeling love for this other person, but his intense need to tell me about it within the context of the book I was writing was really important for me to hear. 
And it kind of did two things. For one thing, it made me realize that I wanted the book to open up into this larger problem of, you know, it's not just how we engage with artists, but it's how we engage with people who do wrong in our lives. You know, this, this sort of artist problem is almost like a laboratory for this other problem. But it also opened up my own, it softened me toward the idea of empathy, redemption, and tolerance for that monstrousness because my friend modeled it. And so then I became very clear that that sort of the book had to turn toward this idea of love. So it was something other people kind of brought to me and it was, just, or maybe I was waiting to see it. Yeah, I mean, you said it took the top of your head off and I, I'm gonna say for me it did as well um, because I hadn't really even been thinking about that when I was reading this book, you know, like I, I guess it was kind of always like an undercurrent there, but when you actually bring that conversation at the end and kind of tie it to, you know, Kind of separating it from art and just talking about the actual interpersonal connection between your friend and their stepfather and trying to see like what is the difference there between art that i love versus a family member or trying to to see what what that what that means to me as a reader and my own reckoning with this and I, it just really hit home in terms of how to think about this book i think as one of kind of like perseverance as someone who consumes art and just as a person and you end the book with thinking about hope all we can do is hope and I think that is so so true and I think I've never seen discussion around this topic as one that kind of roots it in in that idea of love and hope and it was just so revelatory for me and I, I'm ha having a hard time trying to like put it down into words I just want to say I was very moved by it and I think it succeeds thank you that's that's you know, and I, I wonder sometimes, you know, am, am I as hopeful as the book is, <laughs> you know, but I think that that's, um, it's okay to gesture at the possibility of hope. I think it's, I think it's like good to do every once in a while. Um, I, I really, really, really thought I was going to end the book on the idea of how monstrous can we be until people stop loving us. But I, I kind of buried that a couple of few paragraphs earlier because it just I I really liked again turning to another writer's voice turning to Pearl Clegg and then following her lead into some kind of sense of possibility turned out to be the right place to end. I think a big question that many people will come to this book with is what is Claire going to say about consumerism like can I purchase art that is Right. By, by a monster. And I think that was one thing that I, when I opened this, I was like, I hope she talks about this because I don't know how I feel about it. And I think you have some really interesting conclusions. And I feel like it's one of the sections that really, that offers a quite strong argument, in my opinion, maybe you can disagree with me, but I think you have a strong stance on at least like, you know, the consumerism here. And I just wanted to know if you want to talk about that here. Yeah, I mean, we can talk about that. I think that um, that is one of the stronger parts of the book where I sort of start to look at what it means to be an ethical consumer in a late capitalist system. And I tangle with the idea that telling ourselves we're making ethical consumer decisions is something that, you know, we can do. You can make, if it makes you feel better, you should definitely not, you know, rent Roman Polanski's film through Amazon Prime or whatever like that is that's and there's definitely really strong arguments on that side and I understand them and more power to you it's my belief that within the structure that we live in the idea that we can control outcomes in our role as consumer is reinforcement 
of our own lack of empowerment, right? If the only perspective we can see as a way to change something is to be an ethical consumer, then all we're doing is kind of reinforcing the structure of capitalism and its role for us is my is where I come to. And as I say in the book, you know, you can, there's a lot of ways to be a rotten or great person, but how you um, consume art is maybe not one of them. Yes, absolutely. And I, I, I had to address that here because I agreed. So the argument is so well presented and I, I agree fully. So I just wanted to at least touch on that there. Um, yeah, and but... if nothing else comes of this book, if more people read Capitalist Realism by Mark Fisher, I'll be very happy. And <laughs> that was really one of those places where I was so grateful to have had time to write this book. Because I think when I started writing the book, I was coming from, and that was like a huge problem uh, in the writing of the book was like, who, as you said, who is this narrator and what's her perspective? And I think at the beginning of the book, the book, I, in the end, had to make the book move chronologically. My perspective is a much narrower um, feminism that's more rooted in a, in a, in kind of a liberal perspective. And as the book goes on, you know, we all, I went through a lot of changes in the last five years. We all did. And I learned a lot and I learned a lot of things about redemption, abolition, blaming all these different things and about how the, you know, really rethinking my political viewpoints and all that stuff shaped this perspective I come to. And I, I wouldn't have been there if I would have just published the book in 2017. And I'm so grateful I had more time. Um, which is, but then representing that transformation of that narrator to get her to that point was part of the project of the book as well. I have been having this joke with my boyfriend that if that everything now is a project or an interrogation, and I've got to stop saying it. I'm really like, I'm trying to get rid of interrogate and project and it's, I'm failing. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about huge, you know, very deep things here. Um, but I wanted, there is a lot of humor and fun and levity in, in the book and in, in your writing. And I felt, I was so, I found it to be a joy to just read it. And also I liked when you interjected within essays with like your own little quips or something. And I just wanted to ask about your experience, like writing that and how you knew when to include them or how you like edited that. Just general curious about the craft. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is to me, this is I there's a couple things that I think when we talk about what it is to have nonfiction voice, there's a couple of things that that kind of help shape that. And one of them has to do with your balance of interjecting and explaining versus withholding. And sort of my last book did a lot of withholding and letting the reader do the work. And this book obviously had to involve a lot of explaining and interjecting. So I do love, I love, I brought up George Eliot earlier and Jeffrey Eugenides is another person I can think of who does this. I love a really old fashioned, Forster does this, an old fashioned novelistic voice where we see the hand of the author and they come in and they sort of, Jeff Dyer is brilliant at this and they sort of let you know where they are. They, they, they have this dynamic with the reader that is of course, you know, that's, that's constructed, but transparent. And that is something that's really important to me, both as a reader, but also in all my writing. I really, that bridge is, um, is very funny to me, but there's also, it also speaks to something that is super generative for me to, as a writer, which is creating this authorial, this way that the, as a writer, I let you know that the narrator is a construct. 
right? So there's this kind of duality in the voice. This is really pretentious and overexplained, but it is how I think about it. So it's just fun to me. And it's something that I really turn to. I mean, you really see it in like early 20th century and late 19th century writers, that authorial intrusion, that just old fashioned Victorian authorial intrusion is a well I go to over and over. And it doesn't necessarily look Victorian, but that's where it comes from. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. No, I, I love that. It absolutely does because I, I read Middlemarch last year and that book was really like a turning point for me, I feel like, in like my reading life. And yeah. I loved how she does she does that in that book. And I love books that are aware of their form. And that's why I wanted to ask you about that because I think it's so interesting. I read primarily fiction, but it was interesting seeing in a nonfiction form how, how you do that. And just, I love when things are meta in their construction or as soon as I know that the author is bringing the the reader like awareness to them and their presence and in, in the work. I think it's just so fun. I think like the other thing is just going back to that idea of hope. I think there's a really interesting role that humor plays in the book. I was thinking about this last week, just the sort of the humor, you know, a lot of this is so dark and there's some ways in which the humor is simultaneously a way to be hopeful, even if it's being completely, you know, it's very, very black humor it brings in this kind of note of possibility or of connection that um, maybe isn't there if we just focus on what's bleak. The book cover is interesting on that front as well. And I had to ask you about it because I want to know where it came from and if you have a story behind it. Yeah, thank you. I, uh, so that's a, a photo of Picasso at the beach and um, he's wearing the bull's head. And I there was a period where I was going to have the whole book have a theme of bullfighting because there's so much about bullfighting in the genius chapter that could have been expanded on, you know, both Picasso and Hemingway were, were obsessed with bullfighting. And there's so much about the masculine idea of what idea, what art is and what the artist should be. And the bullfighter himself as artist. like, I just, I love that whole imagery of the bull and it fell out of the book eventually. Like there's certain, you have to keep it light stepping, but um, so I love that it was a bowl. I love that it was Picasso. I saw it in an old, it's an old time life photo. And I think I saw, I, I think I just saw it online when I was researching Picasso and it says sat, it sat on my desk for the entire time I wrote the book, just that particular image. And it just made me laugh every time. And there's something about, you know, one of the things I write about in the, um, in the chapter on genius is that both Picasso and Hemingway didn't just sort of inhabit the role of genius, but they helped create it because they were both these, they were these images of the, the artist or the writer at in, in, an, in the early era of mass market communication. And they stepped in and really sort of started to define what the genius would be, would be. And I think the fact that from the time I was a little kid, I could recognize Picasso is fascinating. It's not like I grew up in an arty household. And so there was also like the thing I actually really love about that photo, and I know it's not true for every viewer, but Picasso's torso is so recognizable to me. And that's just wild to me that you could know somebody by from, you know, 1930, whatever, whatever, from their torso is just fascinating as this mass market image that he made out of himself. So there's a lot there for me. And I was really surprised, first of all, that, I mean, I was surprised that they went for it because it is very confrontational and that we were able to get it, it was fantastic. I, I think it's perfect. I didn't know that, I meant to look into it before I 
got into this interview. I wanted to know if, what the reference was. I didn't know it was Picasso. So thank you for letting yeah, me know about that. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, and I love that it worked for you, even though you didn't know that it was Picasso. Like for yeah. all you, my dad, like could be anything. Yeah, I guess the last question I have for you here is just generally about book recs. Like, are you reading right now? Anything you read recently that you really enjoy? So it's a funny moment. Um, I'm just about to start reading The Late Americans by Brandon Taylor. I just, it's on its way to me, which I'm very excited about. And I'm going to do an event with him. Oh yeah, I'm really excited about that. I love his work. I, so I read mostly fiction. Um, I, there is some nonfiction that have influenced this, but I'm just constantly reading novels. Uh, and there are two books right now that are having moments of chicness on the internet that I did not expect. And one is Cassandra at the Wedding which is being much, and I just read it for the first time. I just finished it this morning. It's incredible. I mean, it's just, it's an early queer protagonist. It's this incredible um, family chamber piece. It's hilarious. It's really dark. I don't know, have you read it? It's no, I, I own it. I've been seeing it on Twitter like semi-frequently. So that's interesting. Okay. Yeah. So it's fascinating that this is, you know, one of these books that's come up and I don't, my, my, daughter is really like she's very online and she also reads a lot and so we had a copy of the book that I'd never picked up and she read it and she just sort of solemnly gave it to me I was like you must read this now so that was I read that and that was fantastic and um I also was really happy to see kind of getting a lot of online attention is mating by Norman Rush which is also having this odd moment right yeah yeah and absolutely I love that book I can also recommend that. I just think it's, and I love when that happens, um, when these books that are older books that I adore sort of get, get all this new attention. So, and it's, we talk about funny. Oh my God, it's really funny. And then for nonfiction, just because I, you know, once you want to start giving recommendations, but, and I never know how to say her name, but Deborah Levy or Deborah Levy, the cost of living hers, she has a um, trilogy of nonfiction books that are called the Living Autobiography series. Um, and The Cost of Living, which is the center book in particular, which is just about being divorced, raising her daughters, and living in this very kind of bohemian, eccentric living arrangement. But it's somewhat fragmented, but it's not a collage. But her voice is so observational and so sharp and tart. It's really vinegary. That book didn't structurally affect my book, but her reading her has really, really changed my writing life. And um, once you start reading her, you sort of can't stop. I know a lot of people who just start like looping through those living autobiography books. So I love those. Thank you. She's like a gaping hole. I need to read her. Um, I have her, she's a new uh, novel coming out in June, I believe, which I'm really excited about too. Um, yeah. But I definitely need to check her out this summer for sure. Yeah, the nonfiction's incredible. Awesome. Thank you. I mean, I, thank you for the book recs. I always get like my best book recommendations when I ask authors for them. So um, that's funny that you mentioned mating as well. But thank you so much. And thank you for joining me today. I hope I did this book some justice. I, I loved it. I'm going to be grappling with it for a long time. And I think everyone should read it. I really feel like it's such a like a pivotal and necessary book that I don't know, really moved me again, I was kind of weepy by the end of it. And I was so surprised by it. So thank yeah. you for, you know, expanding my mind and joining me today to talk about it further. I, it really means the world. Oh, thank you. I feel like I feel like you read me so well and I'm just really honored. So thanks a lot. It was really nice meeting you here.